Tēnā My name is Will Appleby, and this is Animal Matters. On today's show, we discuss SAFE and the New Zealand Animal Law Association's historic court case to free mother pigs from farrowing crates. And New Zealand has all but eradicated COVID-19 while the world continues to come to grip with the pandemic. But Dr. Michael Grigger explains to us how zoonotic diseases like the coronavirus emerge and why we're still not safe from future pandemics. Animal Matters is brought to you by Safe for Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation. We're here to open up for discussion the key issues facing animals. We'll go beyond the news cycle and dive into some of the complexities that surrounds the exploitation of animals. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron by heading to patreon.com forward slash animal matters. We've made some changes for Patreon supporters and added some new benefits. Everyone who pledges to the Animal Matters Patreon will get early access to new episodes. New episodes are released every second Tuesday, so patrons will get to listen to these episodes the Friday before. Patrons who pledge to our top tier also get to access bonus content. Patrons can also get their own RSS feed to add to their podcasting app, so early release episodes and bonus content will be sent straight to your device as soon as they're released. At the time of recording, it's three days until the historic Farron Crate Court proceedings. SAFE and the New Zealand Animal Law Association filed proceedings against the government over the continued use of farrowing crates, which have been allowed to continue, despite the fact that they break the law. SAFE and the NZALA will be arguing in court that the farrowing crates violate the Animal Welfare Act 1999 because the confinement of mother pigs don't allow them to express their natural behaviour. The judicial review is laid down for the 8th and 9th of June. By filing these court proceedings, SAFE and the NZALA wish to compel the National Animal Welfare Advisory Committee and the Minister of Agriculture to act lawfully, to improve their legal procedures and to adopt a more robust legal understanding of their duties. What does that all mean though? When does the judge get to slam down their hammer thing and throw out farrowing crates as illegal? It turns out, most of what I think happens in court is informed by suits and better call Saul. Apparently we don't even use those hammers in New Zealand, which are actually called gravels. So I decided to talk to a real lawyer. Marcelo Rodriguez Ferrer is a senior lecturer at the Otago University Faculty of Law and teaches animal law. Whenever SAFE's been talking about this, it's normally been SAFE and NZALA are taking the government to court, um, which is a very easy way to communicate it, but there's obviously more to it. So just to start with, can you tell us, this is obviously not a criminal trial, it's a judicial review. So can you tell us what a, a judicial review is? Yeah, sure. So simply speaking, the government can only act with the power that it um, has been given by parliament. Parliament gets to make the law and Parliament in making the law gives the executive or the government um, and in this situation, uh, MPI uh, and NAWAC, um, a certain amount of power. And one of those powers is to create codes of welfare under the Animal Welfare Act 1999. Um, And if NAWAC, um, which presumably your listeners are familiar with, but um, for those who aren't, that's the National Animal um, Welfare Advisory Council, so sort of uh, operates at arm's length from from MPI. Um, 
if uh, NAWAC has created a code um, of welfare for a particular species or um, uh, industry um, involving animals, um, and it has done so illegally, i.e. beyond the power that Parliament has given it or has not followed the correct processes or has done something that simply Parliament um, and the Animal Welfare Act didn't intend for them to do, then it's possible for someone to take them to court and judicial review and, and seek a judicial review. And all a judicial review is, is a court having a look at how the government has exercised its power and making sure that it's within, say, the four corners of the, the power that Parliament has given it. This case, it's challenging the Animal Welfare Act. This is the first time the Animal Welfare Act has been challenged in this way. What do you think the implications of this case could be? They could be significant. And in fact, I'm just going to say that they will be significant because as you correctly identify, this has never happened before. Um, It's just the nature of the game in terms of the way that codes are created uh, usually has a lot of industry support um, and has a lot of support from those who deal with the animals that the code pertains to. Um, That generally means that they don't go challenged. And there have been challenges of codes in the past, but never in such a formal way as this. And and the simple reason for that is to to bring a judicial review action is a huge step, uh, and it's a very expensive one. Um, And so it often just doesn't happen. Um, But it is the first time that this is happening. And so for the first time, the court is going to have to do a deep dive, a really uh, deep analysis into the way that codes of welfare are created uh, the way that NAWAC operates, uh, the science uh, and data they use to inform the standards that are within the code, uh, and the, the whole code system generally. Um, and because that's never happened before, regardless of the result, even if, uh, say, for the New Zealand Animal Law Association fail, it will still demand the court to, to state the law on how codes should be created and whether or not uh, the code relating to, to pigs in this instance, in, in, in this instance uh, were properly created. Um, and so regardless of whether or not um, uh, the result is a good one, it's that analysis that's going to be really, really important. Uh, of course, if, say, and New Zealand Animal Law Association do win, uh, then that is really huge uh, because at the very least that will force um, NAWAC to return to the drawing board Uh, and have another look at the way that we keep uh, intensively farmed pigs in this country. And and that could lead to significant and tangible welfare improvements um, for these most ill-treated animals uh, in in our commercial farms today. So you've mentioned some of the outcomes either way, whether whether this case could fail or, or succeed. We won't know what the what the outcome will be until the judge makes their their decision. But what, what do you think some potential outcomes could be, and could this set a precedent? Yeah, so I can see a bunch of situations occurring. Um, the, the the core sort of um, argument for um, the New Zealand Animal Welfare Association and sort of the, uh, the the relief that is that is sought is is in the form of what we call a um, a declaration, um, simply that. Uh, the court will state that codes um, or this particular code uh, and in relation to the the 
specific minimum standards that relating to, to, to farrow and crates in particular um, are unlawful. Um, and in fact, the, the argument has gone that, uh, that New Zealand, the, the, the entire code should be ruled unlawful. Um, and if that happens, if, if, if the New Zealand Animal Law Association and SAFE um, win on that key point, uh, then the entire code relating to, to pigs would be held to be unlawful, uh, void and of no effect. And what that would do uh, is that that would mean, number one, that there was no code of welfare relating to pigs. And that's quite significant because uh, it's important for um, pig farmers uh, to rely upon the minimum standards in codes uh, to, to, in a funny way, um, go below the standards that would normally be required from the Animal Welfare Act. The Animal Welfare Act works in a funny way by allowing for um, uh, activities permitted by a code um, to go um, without prosecution or detection that wouldn't fall within the normal sort of provisions of the main act. Um, but without a code to rely upon, uh, the full force of the, the act would be sort of imposed upon pig farmers. Uh, and we know, because this is the basis of the judicial review, uh, that many modern um, intensive uh, pig farms uh, are in breach of the Animal Welfare Act. Um, and the, the simple point of preventing pigs from um, expressing their natural behaviours um, in uh, facilities like farrow and crates. So if the core argument is accepted um, and the court renders the code unlawful, um, that's significant because the, the code will be struck down um, and there will be nothing for pig farmers to rely upon. Now, I expect that that is a long shot, not because um, it's not justified, just because it's so significant that the court might take some sort of medium step um, and ask for specific revisions made to the minimum standards at issue relating to the farrowing crates. That would still be a huge win uh, because those, the content of those, uh, of those minimum standards and relating to farrowing crates are, are, are deeply, deeply problematic. They're not really backed up by the science. Um, they're not really uh, fit for purpose in 2020. Uh, and changes to those... Um, could still lead to really significant changes within our commercial piggeries. Um, but as I say, even if the court says, look, this code was uh, validly and legally created, that's one of the core arguments. There are some process concerns that the, the code, the way that it was produced, um, was uh, problematic in the way that there wasn't a sufficient consultation about it uh, and it misinterpreted pieces of the act in addition to the actual content of the standards being problematic themselves even if um the core argument isn't accepted though and the court says this is validly uh, created uh, and this is all fine the way that new zealand's legal system works is that anything that the judge says is going to be of remarkable value because this is the first time that the court will have really had the opportunity to consider the Animal Welfare Act in, in, in this way. We've had lots of judgments relating to sort of prosecutions um, uh, and the scheme of the act in, in regards to sort of animal cruelty, um, but we have had no analysis of how codes of welfare are intended to work um, and why they exist. And general statements from the court about the value of codes 
how they interact with the rest of the act, what's best practice, how minimum standards should be created is going to be of extreme value. If I'm hearing you correctly, as part of the judge's decision, even if the outcome is a, you know, a failure, so to speak, or it's not a success, part of their dis- the, the decision could hold some value regardless. Very much so. Because it informs, therefore, uh, we've never had a judge. We've never had a natural judge say, here is what a code of welfare is. Here is what a code of welfare is for. Here's how they should be created. And here are the procedures that NAWAC has to follow. At the very least, the judge will talk about that because at issue is whether or not NAWAC did follow the right steps in creating the code. And I've written about this. I've written a textbook on this issue. Many other commentators have written many fine words relating to code processes and their problems. But our words don't hold nearly as much weight as a high court judge and a very good high court judge, I should say as well, the judge at issues, Justice Simon, Simon France is no, is no slouch. He's, he's one of the best legal minds uh, in the high court that we've got. And he will speak about these processes and anything he says carries the, the mana and the gravitas of, of a high court judge saying, here's what's going on. And so That's really valuable because that would, even in the worst case scenario, and SAFE and NZALA lose 100%, it still provides a platform um, for us to further scrutinise the activities of of NAWAC, further scrutinise the way that uh, MPI uh, has a hand in creating these codes um, and prosecuting um, offences Uh, that um, for failure to meet the minimum standards, uh, all of this will provide a platform um, for us to really uh, enforce the code and and really give it another further critical analysis. There's going to be a lot of analysis of this judgment when it comes out, um, simply because it's just never happened before that a court's had a look at the code of welfare process. I mean, we've talked about what, you know, if it was a failure, but obviously we don't want that to happen. No, of course not. (laughs) But I mean, in in your own opinion... What do you think of the case? Is this, you know, it's what it's demonstrating. Is it likely to be successful? Yeah, so I'm talking about sort of doomsday scenarios simply because there is there is a big silver lining to a, a worst case result. I don't think it's likely at all, though, if I'm honest. I think SAFE and the New Zealand Animal Law Association have been extremely clever in the way that they've framed this um, because it would be easy to dismiss um, a claim by uh, SAFE and New Zealand Animal Law Association saying, you just don't like farrow and crates. But people have a difference of view and a different scientific opinion. They're actually not that bad for pigs. And so be on, on, on your bike. You just don't like people eating meat. And therefore, you're always going to be opposed to this. Um, that's a bad response. Because what... New Zealand Animal, the, the, the applicants safe um, New Zealand Animal Law Association have done has not really anything to do with sort of the problems of pig farming generally. It's been a sort of a razor sharp analysis of the way that this particular code was created, and there are some significant process concerns. Certainly, in my opinion that um, that NAWAC has got it wrong. The way that they created this code was problematic, and they were a bit. Um, hasty in the way that they created it and in doing so 
failed to follow the correct steps that are mandated by the Animal Welfare Act uh, and specifically the amendments that occurred in 2015. It feels like they didn't read those amendments and uh, as a result have got themselves into a bit of bother. So those process concerns have nothing to do about the value or otherwise of pig farming or intensive pig farming in New Zealand. Those process concerns are saying, hey, Parliament said that you have to follow steps A, B, and C before you can create a code. You didn't follow steps A, B, and C. That means that you did not do what Parliament said, and you need to be held account for that. And no one, any lawyer, will say that that is a good thing and something that should happen. The scrutiny to, um, that, that is applied to government and government bodies is really important because we don't want them not to follow the law. Um, and so it's an easy way, an easy sort of dismissal of this claim is that sort of tree-hugging greenies um, just want to stop people eating bacon. It really couldn't be further from the, um, from, the, from the truth if you look at the actual claim, though. The claim is simply that they fail to follow the right processes. There's an additional claim, though, and that does go into sort of the, the, the value or otherwise of the way that we farm pigs intensively in New Zealand and the validity uh, and worth from a scientific perspective um, and from an animal welfare perspective of uh, facilities like farrowing crates. And it's clear to me that there is really no justification for allowing farrowing crates from both a scientific perspective, um, so pure sort of uh, animal um, uh, husbandry perspective or uh, an animal welfare science perspective. Um, The science is pretty clear um, that any sort of productivity gains you get out of farrowing crates are well outweighed by the harm and distress that you put to relatively intelligent um, beings like pigs. There's just no good justification for it. Uh, And that's really important because NAWAC can't create minimum standards or allow for anything um, that harms animals. They don't have carte blanche to do that. They need to be very clear about the scientific basis for activities that would otherwise fall well below what we would expect from the Animal Welfare Act. There is the, the five freedoms have been enshrined in New Zealand legislation. We were a very progressive country for putting this into our legislation uh, as long ago as we did in 1999. And, and one of those five freedoms is the opportunity to express natural patterns of behaviour. Farrowing crates by design, shutting in a pig and not allowing the pig to turn around just obviously prevents that pig um, for long stretches of time from expressing their natural behaviours. And you can say that's fine so long as there's a really compelling, scientifically proven case for it, and there isn't. And as a result, from that content perspective, NAWAC simply didn't really have the power to allow for these minimum standards anyway. But the bigger point is that they didn't really do their homework in, uh, in promulgating, is, it's a funny word for just issuing, these codes of welfare. Uh, because they simply didn't follow the correct processes in the Act. Uh, And so it's this kind of one-two punch. There are process concerns, but even if you're ignoring the process concerns, there are content concerns. The actual content of the standards are problematic, as well as the process that put them there in the first place. 
And so I think that's a really compelling argument. It's a very straightforward legal one. So I engage in animal law research, but funnily enough, my other branch of research is on judicial review. And this is a very straightforward judicial review case. This isn't doing something crazy. This isn't asking the court to to do something that it's never done before. Uh, It is asking the court to look at an area of law that it's never looked at. But from sort of pure fundamentals, uh, the case that New Zealand Animal Law Association and SAFE have uh, is a very strong one, in my opinion. It's really heroic, frankly. There was a claim in 2005 to Parliament about layer hens, um, and that was created um, by a uh, a now defunct organisation, Arlan, who were doing something very similar to the New Zealand Animal Law Association. And they successfully pointed out that the Code of Welfare relating to uh, layer hens, it was all about um, the time that it would take to phase out battery cages. Um, they were successful in complaining to Parliament and saying that the Code of Welfare and NAWAC's behaviour around, uh, around it was wrong. But the problem was, is though that was a very cost-effective route, you can complain to Parliament about this. Um, Parliament, or, or specifically the Regulations Review Committee that they complained to, had no power to force the government to change its approach to these sorts of things. The difference here is that the court does have that power. The benefit of going to the court, yes, it's expensive, but the benefit to going to the court is that they can tell the government to do something and the government can't ignore them. We have many situations where SAFE issues a press release, where New Zealand Animal Law Association releases a press release, you release reports, they're well-researched, they're damning. The government takes them and says, okay, thanks very much for your opinion, but farmers really are sort of where the money is, and so we're probably going to ignore you. Vegans don't have much of a, a, a voting block. They can't do that in this situation. If the New Zealand Law and Law Association and say are successful here, NAWAC has to change its approaches. It will mean that the codes of welfare relating to pigs will be struck down. They will be illegal. And that momentous um, sort of result, I really hope that it does happen, will really actually shake things up in the way that we regulate animal welfare in New Zealand. And so it took a lot of resources. It took a lot of fundraising. It took a lot of um, uh, pro bono uh, free work um, uh, from passionate people to put this together. And the case that they have put together and that you've put together is a really formidable one. Uh, and to do so sort of on the smell of an oily rag and sort of really challenge the government and make them do something that they don't want to do is huge. Um, and as I say, nothing short of heroic because this is how we affect real change um, to a really problematic industry in New Zealand. Uh, and in doing so, really shine um, a light on NAWAC's processes Sunlight's the best disinfectant, and that's exactly what's going to happen here. It's likely to be a while until we find out what the judge's decision on this case is. So we'll keep you informed of any developments. In the meantime, you can support this campaign by heading to safe.org.nz. Today on the show, I am joined by Dr. Michael Gregham, 
Michael is a physician and the founder of the non-profit organization NutritionFacts.org. He's an internationally recognized speaker on nutrition, food safety, infectious diseases and public health issues and a founding member and fellow of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. He's made it his life's work to educate the public about evidence-based eating and how the vast majority of premature deaths can be prevented through changes to one's diet. He's the author of the New York Times bestselling How Not to Die, and recently published a new book he was able to fast-track due to the COVID-19 crisis called How to Survive a Pandemic. Dr. Michael Grigham, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Excited to be on. Sometime in March, when COVID-19 really began to make its, its presence felt, in Western countries, a video of a presentation you did in 2008 reappeared where you said the two greatest threats facing humanity are climate change and emerging infectious diseases. You even outlined how we could prevent further pandemics altogether. It was a little like a time capsule from the past containing a warning that had been largely ignored. I'm interested to know how you're feeling now while the world is still coming to terms with with COVID-19. Do you feel at least partially frustrated? Has the thought ever crossed your mind? We've been saying this for for years. We knew that a pandemic like this, like the one that we're currently going through, was on its way and and nobody listened. Yeah, pandemics are inevitable. I mean, uh, you know, predicting another pandemic is like predicting the sun is going to come up in the morning. I mean, public health, uh, you know, professionals have been shouting from the rooftops for years, urging pandemic preparedness. Um, So, yeah, very frustrating that we weren't ready. In fact, if you look at some of the countries that were best prepared, uh, Taiwan, Singapore, South Korea. You know, the reason it was no, uh, I mean, it's because they had the similar deadly coronavirus outbreaks previously. They all suffered from, um, from SARS outbreaks. In uh, 2015, South Korea suffered a big MERS outbreak. Um, and so they were ready. They had the testing and tracing in place. They had the public health infrastructure. Um, and so, you know, if dozens or hundreds of deaths can rally entire countries, to a state of pandemic preparedness, well, hopefully, um, the you know the lesson we can learn from COVID nineteen and potentially the millions of deaths that are going to result um, is that uh, maybe we can you know reorient the countries of the world towards the uh, goal of pandemic prevention. You know, now with commercial global airline travel, you know, viruses can escape our grasp in a matter of days. So we really need to prevent the emergence of these viruses in the first place. So, so what is a zoonotic disease and, and how do they emerge? So zoonotic diseases are diseases that jump from animals to humans. And over the last few decades, hundreds of human pathogens have emerged at a rate unprecedented in human history. They said, wait a second, emerged from where? Mostly from animals. The AIDS virus is blamed on the butchering of primates and the bushmeat trade in Africa. Mad cow disease was because we turned, you know, cows into carnivores and cannibals, SARS and COVID-19 arose, um, I've been traced back from the exotic wild animal trade. Uh, but our last pandemic, swine flu in 2009, arose not from some backwater wet market in Asia, but was largely made in the USA on pig operations in the United States. Now, thankfully, swine flu only killed about a half million people, but the next time we might not be so lucky. So some of those examples that you've You've just mentioned swine flu, SARS, 
they they haven't had as big of an impact as, as COVID nineteen. Do you think this is the what we're currently going through? Um, is this the tip of the? Is this kind of what we could expect from major pandemics, or is this? just the tip of the iceberg well, this is relatively mild so there's a, a, a pandemic severity index that the cdc um invented similar to the hurricane severity index categories one through five um swine flu was a category one pandemic this is a uh, shaping up to be a category two pandemic meaning less than 0.5 percent case fatality rate we're at about 0.4 percent right now um, and, but look, the, you know, goes all the way up to category five, which starts at a 2% case fatality rate, like the 1918 pandemic, which killed 50 million people. Um, but it's important to realize that as devastating as COVID-19 has been, it may just be a dress rehearsal for an even greater threat waiting in the wings of chickens. According to the CDC, the leading candidate for the next pandemic is a bird flu virus known as H7N9, which is a hundred times deadlier than COVID-19. Instead of a 1 in 250 cases dying, H7N9 has killed 40% of people it infects. I mean, the last time bird flu virus jumped directly to humans and caused the pandemic, it triggered the deadliest plague in history, the 1918 pandemic. That was 2% fatality. I mean, what if we had a pandemic infecting billions where death was closer to a flip of a coin? But the good news is there's something we can do about it. Just as eliminating the exotic animal trade and live animal markets may go a long way towards preventing the next coronavirus pandemic, well, reforming the way we raise domestic animals for food may help forestall the next killer flu. So tell me about some reform. How is it that our relationship to animals and how is it that how we treat animals plays a role in in zoonotic diseases? Well, when we overcrowd thousands of animals in these cramped, filthy football field-sized sheds to, you know, lie beak to beak or snout to snout atop their own waste in animal agriculture, it's just a breeding ground for disease. The sheer numbers of animals, the overcrowding, the stress crippling their immune systems, the ammonia from the decomposing waste burning their lungs, lack of fresh air, lack of sunlight. I mean, put all these factors together and what you have is a really a perfect storm environment for the emergence and spread of these so-called super strains of influenza. These, these so-called factory farms are a public health menace. That's why the American Public Health Association, the largest and oldest association of public health professionals in the world, has called for a moratorium on factory farming. We need to give these animals a little breathing room. They're the ones that could use a little social distancing right now. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, factory farms can be thought of as kind of a viral incubators for disease, a potential recipe for disaster. So say we ended factory farming hypothetically because of its risks, uh, not only to, to the welfare of animals, but, um, the, the role it plays in emerging infectious diseases. Is that, is that enough for, to, to kind of stem the flow of zoonotic diseases? Or is there, a great, is there other ways that our relationships with animals play, play a role? Well, that would certainly uh, dramatically reduce our risk. Um, there are other so-called anthropogenic causes of emerging zoonotic infectious disease. Many of these hemorrhagic fever viruses like Lassa fever or Ebola virus um, trace back to deforestation. Um, uh, so different land use changes, um, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, this uh, slash and burn agriculture can displace fruit bats, but which is blamed the, in the Nipah virus um, uh, um, epidemic. I mean, so there's, there's certainly other ways that these viruses can pop their head out. But what we're concerned about 
is pandemic potential. Yes, it's terrible when Nipah virus pops up and, you know, may have, a, you know, extremely high fatality rate, but if just a few dozen people die, it's a tragedy. But, um, you know, but, you know, the, you know, markets don't tumble around the world with trillions of dollars lost, billions in lockdown, millions of lives uh, um, uh, in the balance. Um, it, and when we look at pandemic threats, um, uh, it really comes down to primarily influenza. Um, it's one of the few viruses capable of infecting a significant chunk of the populace, of the global populace, within just a matter of months. And we chose at, uh, the, the two of the rare species that are able to contract influenza to create billions of every year, and that's pigs and, uh, and chickens. Um, you know, if we were factory farming rabbits, this wouldn't be a problem. We had a little tularemia or something, but I mean, we, I mean, we wouldn't be birthing um, potential catastrophic pandemics. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, basically in this new age of emerging diseases, there are now, you know, billions of feathered and curly-tailed test tubes for viruses to incubate and mutate within billions more spins at pandemic roulette. And it's only because we're placing them back in the sheds. Basically, you know, every 45 days, every broiler chicken on the planet is essentially killed off. And the only reason that there's um, more chickens in the world 46 days from now is because we repopulate the sheds. We don't have to do that. Um, we can choose other um, animal sources of protein or plant-based sources of protein. Um, by accelerating the movement towards plant-based milks, plant-based meats, plant-based egg products, or growing meat without lungs, cultivating muscle meat with muscle cells. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about fecal bacteria if you're growing meat without um, intestines, so E. coli, salmonella, campylobacter. Don't have to worry about respiratory infections if you're making meat without the lungs. This is real meat, actual animal meat, but without pandemic risk. These are the kind of really big-picture ideas that hopefully um, COVID-19 will start the conversation over. So you, you fast-tracked your, your book, How to Survive a Pandemic. Um, I guess one of the, the small benefits of you know, most of us being in lockdown is it's given us a lot of free time to, to work on, on certain things that we haven't been able to. Tell me about this new book. Yeah, so uh, uh, 3,600 citations, about 600 pages. Try to cover everything there is to know to protect ourselves and our families from the current um, coronavirus threat. Uh, you know, optimal respiratory and hand hygiene, surface disinfection, you know, everything from masks to, you know, making your own, you know, DIY hand sanitizer. But the best way to survive a pandemic, um, as I mentioned, is really prevented in the first place. And so that's really where the bulk of the bulk centers around tracing the origins of the COVID coronavirus and, you know, what we can do to prevent even greater infectious disease threats mm. in the future. And speaking about the future, if we do not change our current behaviors, how likely is it that, what is our risk for future pandemics? like the one that we're currently experiencing? Well, look, I mean, you know, we may be one bushmeat meal away from the next HIV, one pangolin plate away from the next killer coronavirus and one factory farm away from the next deadly flu. But, you know, along with human culpability comes hope, right? If changes in human behavior can cause new plagues, well, then changes in human behavior may prevent them in the future. Though tragically, you know, we don't tend to shore up the levees until after the disaster strikes, and it may take a pandemic that wipes out millions before the world realizes the true cost of cheap chicken. So what do you, do you feel 
like there's hope, I guess. Do you think this is a wake up call for the world? Do you think that that humanity will will act with what it now know what what it's now currently experiencing? That's the hope, right? That this is uh, that would be the silver lining of COVID nineteen. Um, that you know this is the dry run we needed, the fire drill to wake us out of our complacency. Really take a cold hard look at um, the food system. And the reforms that can be made to reduce the risk of animal agriculture, to shift away from animal agriculture altogether. But there's tremendous optimism. Um, I mean, I mean, uh, major meat producers, Tyson, Purdue, Smithfield, Hormel, Cargill, have already started innovating us out of this precarious situation by making these plant-based meat alternatives. Um, I mean, just a few weeks ago, there was a headline that read KFC to roll out Cargill's plant-based chicken across China. Right. Uh, we're not talking about Tofurky. Cargill is America's largest private corporation, one of the biggest meat packers in the world. They see the writing on the wall. You know, they're reorienting, reorienting themselves to be protein companies, not necessarily meat companies. Um, and uh, and so, you know, look at what's happening in the dairy case. Right. I mean, major um, dairies in the states are declaring bankruptcy. Why? Because there's this constellation of new and better consumer choices um, and fluid milk cells have have plummeted. Um, Well, the same kind of innovation is starting to take place in the meat um, aisle as well. And that can only help in terms of reducing pandemic risk. You've been listening to Animal Matters. This podcast is brought to you by Safe for Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation and produced by myself, Will Appleby. Make sure you subscribe to Say Across Animal Matters on wherever your favourite platform is. If you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners to find the show. If you want to support the show, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash animal matters. Until next time, kakitea anoa.